Things like uh, psilocybin, ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, there, there are no cases of people actually becoming addicted to these substances. They're oftentimes very challenging. And so for me and for people who are listening, like if you were to take a hero's dose of psilocybin, you know, which is quarter of five grams, like a large dose, oftentimes you're going to be sent into this place of trauma release where you're facing fears from being a child, ego dissolution, which can be very uncomfortable. You're almost thinking of like a surgical process in the, in the mind where it can cause like the feelings of having a psychotic break. Like I've had ayahuasca experiences where I would cut my arm off to make it stop because I was going into these childhood traumas I didn't want to face and like kind of processing and surrendering. So it's very different from a casual, hey, I'm having four beers after work to like numb out. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. I made a commitment at the beginning of this year that one of the areas I wanted to explore and spend some more time in was with breathwork. And breathwork was always a challenge for me in that it's kind of like, I think, uh, water is a challenge for people. There's nothing exciting about it. It sounds so basic. Inherently, it's not triggering any kind of dopamine within my brain, which is exactly how I knew it was going to be something that would be important to my evolution. And then I had this opportunity to meet this individual in my own city who is doing incredible work around this idea of of breath work. And not only is he combining or doing breath work, he's combining it with one of my favorite things in the world, which is ice baths and sauna and community. And so I, I reached out to Robbie Bent and asked him if he would have a conversation with me, a conversation around his own journey with addiction and with mental health challenges and with managing his own insecurities and how, how he stepped out of his own experiences with business not working out the way he wanted it to into something that was incredibly successful, into a life that he is passionate and excited about, how he cleared past baggage, how he moved into a state of health and was able to maintain a state of of health mentally and physically that gets him excited every day. And so this is that conversation. Robbie has a fascinating background and amazing story. And he's built this incredible product that that hangs out at the intersection of the virtual space and a physical location. He's built an app to support breathwork and a beautiful location within Toronto where people can gather like like the Romans did in baths in a social space where we are we are exploring cold cold plunges and hot saunas and all of the feelings and all of the motions and all of the extremes that accompany those two states it was a fascinating conversation robbie is an amazing guy and i'm so excited that you have the opportunity to hear from him now Robbie Bent, welcome to Impact. Thank you. I'm excited and, and grateful you invited me on. Well, I'm I'm excited to have you here. And you know, I've been I've been sitting here for the last few hours really trying to decide what angle I want to come at this interview with. And I just decided I was going to I was going to surrender and we were going to see where where the wind takes us. But just before I hit uh, before I hit start on this, I said one of the things I've been doing is stalking you on Instagram as one does. I was really deeply curious about 
some of the things that you're interested in right now and exploring? Because they're things that are also in a parallel area of exploration for myself. And I want to know what's happening in the mind and in the life experience to create this confluence of intrigue for you around the idea of crypto, psychedelics, ice bath, and breath work. How did these arenas come to be at the forefront of your life experience right now? Um, so all of those have one thing in common outside of crypto and just creating space to shift your nervous system and emotional state. The nervous system is always in, you know, either the fight or flight, right? The sympathetic or the rest and digest, the parasympathetic. And for your listeners that are entrepreneurs, most likely dominant fight or flight. You know, you wake up, you check your phone, email, Slack, Discord. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's just insanity uh, and consistent overwhelm. And our brain actually doesn't know the difference between real stress, like being chased by a lion, and perceived stress like oh my god jerry just messaged me i'm five minutes late for this like zoom video call and you know and it's like the heart rate starts pumping our breath patterns change and stress hormones are are released and you know to run a business as an entrepreneur you're sort of signing up for like 95 percent fight or flight and so that's for me like how these things tie together i'm really overactive person love stimulation if i watch tv i could binge for two days if i you know how I got into this stuff, I was really into drugs and uh, alcohol. So I would disappear, would party for five, six days. And I would just, just love feeling alive. So I also do a ton of extreme sports. I was just into like, you know, startups and risk and sales and like stimulation. And so that kind of led me to uh, a lot of challenges in my in my 20s and a, a period of, you know, addiction and kind of being beaten down, losing a company live in my parents' basement. And then through that time, I, I went searching for ways to cope. And, you know, Tim Ferriss, Ben Greenfield, morning routines, meditation, psychedelics, went on this whole journey and found something that worked for me, which we can get into. And been sober now for six years, primarily from learning how to regulate my nervous system state and my emotional state. Then I met my wife and surprisingly... A friend of mine who I went to do ayahuasca with, it was like, okay, this is it. I'm quitting drug use. Like, this is what's going to work. I've, I've researched it everywhere. You know, I've done these meditation retreats and I'm doing okay, but I need to like stop. And to do that, I need, actually need to stop drinking. And so I went in to Peru, did this like deep jungle four journey ayahuasca retreat, uh, which we can get into as well. But, but before that, you know, did it with one of my best friends who kind of accompanied me, have been sober ever since. And he was working in crypto. And he just said, Hey, uh, I was always working in, in tech. And he just kind of said to me, you know, there's these all these companies being built in Silicon Valley. And I've been working in Toronto. I was like, oh, it's the big leagues. And so uh, I just kind of moved out there and started helping out for free in the Ethereum ecosystem, which led to a job at Ethereum. When I started, it was, you know, kind of six bucks. And there was Nobody really into it outside of a whole bunch of smart people. And I got deeply into crypto living in, you know, San Francisco, multiple occasions and, and Germany. And that's kind of how everything ties together. And, you know, this confluence of these healing practices to master the nervous system, like meditation, psychedelic medicines, ice bath, breath work, and then crypto. Was there one thing that sort of facilitated this shift for you. And and so here's the context with which I'm asking that and listening to you talk about, you know, you were you were drinking and you were into drugs and risk and like this is high stimulation fast-paced stuff. And when I talk to entrepreneurs who are into a fast-paced 
lifestyle. And then I even like form the thing on my face. that's going to say meditation. They're like instantly like, like there, there is just this, there's this wall. It's so, it's so slow and unstimulating compared to what I do. Was there something that enabled you to open your mind to some of these, I'm going to say slower practices, less stimulating practices? Yes, but I don't think you necessarily as an entrepreneur need to start with the slower practices. And so I started with meditation because I had lost my business. I was sitting at home, like ultimate depression, you know, almost suicidal. Like, hey, I'm effectively feeling like a loser. You know, I'm 28. I have no money. I'm living in my parents' basement. And I, I went to, I was like, I'm a really competitive person and like a type A, like work super hard, really like care about validation and success. And so that, that feeling was like awful. So I was just kind of, doing drugs and like, okay, I just have to change. So I'll try anything. And so, you know, everywhere, any research you read, it's like meditation, 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 the way to change your brain, neuroplasticity, focus, anxiety. And, and so, so I did. And so I used Headspace every day um, with moderate changes. And then I moved to Israel and actually tried, you know, a 10-day retreat, silent retreat, 100 hours. And so meditation is a skill. So for people who are listening and like, you know what, I tried it, I put it on my phone, it didn't work. Now I feel guilty, nothing's happening. I'm sitting down and I'm just thinking about work. This is useless. That's the common response. And like 99% of people feel that way. And it actually took me, and this sounds insane too, and it's kind of part of my extreme personality, but it took me going to this 10-day retreat where you do 10 hours one a day, 100 hours of meditation. And in it, you start to really feel what it's like to be in that state of awareness, to process emotions, to let them go. And so it's almost like, you know, if you picked up a guitar or an instrument, a piano, you can't play a song. And so it's not fun because you're just like, this sucks. Like, I'm no good at it. That's what you're going through when you try meditation and can't get into it. So that 10-day retreat was actually two years of daily headspace or calm. That's the first thing I would say if you're an entrepreneur, you know, you need these pattern interrupts and we'll, we'll get into that too. But 10-day meditation is the best way to actually learn because you'll, you'll feel into where you can go with meditation. And then after, it's easier to have a daily practice. But for most people, it's just like, no way, like zero chance, 10 days. Absolutely not. That sounds insane. I could never do that. And so I wrote articles about it. I guided meditations. I had 200 friends and maybe like while I was at Ethereum, things went well for me really fast. Right. And so I'm like, oh man, it's psychedelics and meditation. If you do those, like things are going to go well for you. I'm super passionate about them teaching friends at Ethereum, like daily meditations, you know, sending people to psychedelic retreats. And I found it. Meditation was really hard. And, and so most people just couldn't get into it. And then psychedelic medicines are, are great to create habit change to, to sort of act as a catalyst. So if you have a very clear intention, like I did with, you know, giving up drugs, giving up alcohol, processing emotion, letting go, fantastic tool, but they're not very great for maintaining behavioral change. And so I had probably 70 friends who went on retreat, came home, no other tools in the tool belt. And the behavior they wanted to change didn't manifest. So I sort of saw that happening over four years at crypto is like, hey, this stuff worked for me, but it's not working for others. And I kind of thought more deeply about it. And I felt like I met my wife right after the, the ayahuasca retreat and she was super healthy. And so I had this like accountability and like inspirational person in my life. And then we always went to bathhouses uh, to be sober. Like I didn't want to be around alcohol. So it would be sauna, ice bath. And that's when I started to realize there might be another way to get super stressed, high powered people like me with ADHD that are like really intense into 
mindfulness. And that's sort of where breathwork, ice baths, sauna came in. Okay, we're going to come back to that to that piece. But I just want to say this, this analogy of like playing guitar. And I, I, I have a piano app on my phone. And like, bah, it's not working. Because I've turned it on like three times and expected to be a concert pianist. And that we have this mismatch of, of expectation. And I think especially for, for entrepreneurs, like once we get into a flow, we're kind of used to, once you've got momentum, we're used to getting those results really quickly. I, uh, I love that analogy. I want to get into something you mentioned in that, in that stream of consciousness, which is this notion of pattern interrupts and entrepreneurs need pattern interrupts. What do you mean by that? So I just wrote a really awesome article about burnout for entrepreneurs and I can flip it to you for oh, that's the so convenient. show notes. I just finished putting <laughs> the final touches on it today, actually. And so there's this idea when you're an entrepreneur, your, your business is like the most important thing to you, right? Like on maybe not most, but like on par with family, friends, like for me right now, it's part of my identity. And so there's, you know, you want it to be successful. It's important for your financial means. You like care about the problem. So there's this tendency for it to take up more and more mind space. So even if you're not working, you're thinking about it. And then what happens is you start to get addicted to stimulation. And so what I mean by that is like, okay, you know, all of a sudden, maybe I'm working Saturday, maybe I'm working Sunday. Also, that one coffee in the morning is now two, now it's three. I'm now looking at like my email and Slack all day. It's consistent, like dopamine response. It's very similar to being addicted as a, as a former drug addict. It's the same feeling. It's like, oh, I want to get up. I want to push stuff forward. I want to be in my emails. I want to like, I want to be cranking, you know, this feeling of like validation and self-worth. So everything's wrapped up in that and you, you start to overstimulate the brain. You're not getting enough break. And so what happens, you know, first your sleep starts to go. So before bed, you're looking at screens, you're thinking, you're wired, you're thinking about work. And then as your sleep goes, your willpower goes along with it. So caffeine intake increases emotional state starts to deteriorate. So these, these are common patterns and it's very easy to do because you care so much about your business. And what you'll find over years is all of a sudden it's really hard to do like deep work. So, you know, you're in it, you're on top of Slack, you're responding to every email, you're inbox zero, but like that amazing strategic deep dive you were supposed to do, you're just pushing it off. That like really complex legal agreement is tough. Firing that person where you need to get in the zone is difficult. So the, the like, deep work, creative, like three hour time blocks become harder. And that's a a great sign that like, Hey, I'm I'm burning out, you know, and it happens really slowly. And so the response to that is is like dopamine fasting or this idea of of pattern interrupts. There's a really good article um, by Dr. Cam Seppa about this. And also there's a lot by Dr. Anna Lemke from Stanford and her book called Dopamine Nation. I've got it upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's just about overstimulation and what that does to your brain. And, And so what happens if you're listening and you're like a workaholic, which I am, and my addiction tendencies now flow towards work, is like that stimulation crowds out your enjoyment of life. So you're just in the fight or flight all day long getting stimulation. And so things that you really enjoy, you know, in the in the other side of the nervous system, the parasympathetic, like laughing, intimacy, eye gazing, feeling meaning, feeling joy, it becomes harder and harder to access those emotions and they feel so slow. And so you know, an example of a pattern interrupt, I actually lived in a cave for eight days, like complete darkness. And again, I'm not suggesting this. It's just like my, my personality. I like you just drop that in there too. <laughs> when I was living in a cave for eight days. That's good. But it, it was like the ultimate, like I was so stressed about work and like dopamine firing. Like I missed the flight 
connector because I was on Twitter just like looking for stimulation. Yes, I do that too. And I have to stop myself. I didn't mean to interrupt your thing, but I was like, I, yes. It happened in COVID. So I had all these practices Mm -hmm. that like allow me to go this hard and be this intense about work, but still like create space. And so in COVID, like all of a sudden, no gym, all of a sudden, no like socializing and dinners, you know, I, all of a sudden I'm like on Twitter all day trying to figure out what's happening with the vaccines for our physical business and like what's going to happen. So I'm like, you know, I have a new Twitter addiction. And so I was so jacked up on like my screens and just like consistent stimulation. So, you know, I'm going, I'm like, Hey, I, I need to like a pattern interrupt. The one I did was a dark retreat, which is kind of the ultimate form of this, where you, you live in a cave, no stimulation at all. And you reset your dopamine receptors. And so what happens is Firstly, yeah, I missed the flight on the way there because I was just on Twitter, like looking. And I look up, I'm like, oh my God, I'm at the wrong gate. Like, what am I even doing? <laughs> so I get there, going from like, you know, speeding in a race car, like basically just running it right into the wall. And like, I get there, and, and the cave is so dark, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And you're just sitting there. First two days, you're just kind of sleeping. And then, you know, all your thoughts start racing. And it's kind of like, I heard this from Aubrey Marcus, but. Imagine your computer just chugging along with like 400 tabs open and that's your day to day. And that's like, I'm not good enough. I have these 10 tasks. I've got to like do this thing for my mom. What do my kids think about me? Oh my God, my financial strain. They're just all these programs running and running and running and running. And so it's so hard like to even know how you're feeling because you're just on autopilot. And so you go into this cave or nature or meditation, whatever, no phone. You just slowly click off the tabs and like you reset, bring your nervous system back to zero. And so there's way more, which we can we can link an article to that experience because it's pretty wild. But you go out from that and all of a sudden, like the smell of just fresh air after being in the cave, you know, the colors of just simple green of like the sun rising and like hitting your eyes and just, you know, the feeling of being in a cold lake in the morning and then a sauna and then just eating like a simple apple, looking at it, seeing it, eating it. And in that three hours, like the simplicity the amazingness of life when you're not so tweaked up in your nervous system. It's like, wow, okay, I'm, I'm reset. And then all that like junk in your mind, you feel like, okay, I'm not overwhelmed. I can just do these tasks. They're easy. I can just move forward. And so that's an extreme example, but I would recommend, you know, sort of one of those per year, whether it's a week meditation retreat, a week psychedelic retreat, a week just in nature without your phone. But the idea is to really reduce stimulation. And so what's recommended by this, this doctor, Cameron Sepp, is, you know, one week per year, one weekend per quarter, one day per week, and then a few hours per night, where there's no, like, screens, you're allowing your mind to relax. And so it's really important. It's not like, you know, people, depending on your age, oh, vacation, like, I'm going to Vegas. And, like, that's, like, tweaking your stimulation even further. So it's really creating time to be bored. And what's cool is, like, if I asked you, when's the last time you were bored? you won't it's probably never like you have your phone you know you go out for dinner you're waiting your partner goes to the bathroom first thing you do into your pocket phone look at twitter look at you know whatever's on there for stimulation and so this isn't something you would have needed to do 20 years ago because most of the time you know you're driving somewhere you're naturally bored there's commercials you're listening to radio you think now like okay i'm watching netflix just binge 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 right into like maybe i'm watching netflix and looking at my phone you know it's like so much stimulation. And I think boredom, like managing boredom, I'm kind of fascinated with how that works. Like even even my children, we see this all the time. We're like, you you need to be able to just sit in your own space and energy. And they're like, 
they need, they need that stimulation all the time. So I'm kind of fascinated with this idea. I'm going to play with this a little bit more, this notion of this notion of boredom. (sighs) Robbie, I I suspect I'm going to have some people who are curious about the relationship between addiction and drugs and psychedelics and where the difference lies between those two. Can you shed some light on that? This is a question I get a lot, especially people who are in AA. You know, I struggle with alcohol and cocaine, stimulants, and so sober from those. But they'll be like, oh, you're taking like psilocybin, you're not sober. And so, fine. I, I personally don't really care about the definition. But then there's a lot of people who are in AA and they're like, oh, you know, I heard about psilocybin on Tim Ferriss. I'm really interested. But then, you know, maybe the community is going to look at me as not sober anymore. And that's part of my identity. So, there's a lot of questions, especially for people who are like fully sober around fear, like, hey, I don't want to go back to that space. And so, if you think about substance use, there's kind of like escape, right? And escape might be like, you know, alcohol, it could be like benzos or um, like anti-anxiety medication. There's uh, chase. And so, chase is the one you really want to avoid, which is kind of like cocaine, heroin, uh, these ones that are like you just keep using them. And then there's explore. And to me, explore is psychedelic medicines that can be used in that way. And so mm-hmm. things like uh, psilocybin, ayahuasca, 5-MeO, DMT, there, there are no cases of people actually becoming addicted to these substances. They're oftentimes very challenging. And so for me and for people who are listening, like if you were to take a hero's dose of psilocybin, you know, which is quarter of five grams, like a large dose, oftentimes you're going to be sent into this place of, you know, trauma release where you're facing fears from being a child, ego dissolution, which can be very uncomfortable. So it's not really some you're almost thinking of like a surgical process in the in the mind where it can cause like the feelings of having a psychotic break. Like I've had ayahuasca experiences where I would have paid like I would have cut my arm off to make it stop because I was going into these childhood traumas I didn't want to face and like kind of processing and surrendering. So it's very different from a casual, hey, I'm having four beers after work to like numb out. It's not a fun Friday night. It's not. It's just it's confronting, like going super deep into uh, emotions. People can abuse these things also. But again, they're just like the danger level from abuse is is very low. So they're not likely to cause issues in the same way alcohol would. So if you're like comfortable with drinking alcohol, where it's like super bad for the nervous system, bad for you physiologically, uh, can cause like poor decision making, cheating, anger, all these types of things. Uh, psychedelics will definitely not do that. So I, I look at just the way, like when they rank, there was a study by this professor, David Nutt, and they ranked like destructiveness of substances, and alcohol was like 50 orders of magnitude higher than psilocybin mushrooms. So you think of mushrooms like they're not bad for you, they can be good for your gut. They, you know, you, you can microdose them and use them frequently. You can do these bigger doses um, with a guide. They can be bring up emotions, which can be problematic, but, or can be challenging. So it's nice to do them with a a therapist if you're nervous. But I would say from a destruction standpoint of your life, it's like basically zero versus alcohol. What is the experience in, in leveraging these psychedelics for exploration? Is it like, is it a permanent opening release integration? Is it something where you're like, oh, I had this clarity for a period of time and then I had to I had to do it again? What is that experience for people who have a curiosity around that? Let's set the stage with a couple of like examples. And so imagine your life as a child when you're, you know, five, before you've really experienced hopefully 
you know, any deep like hurts, embarrassment, rejection, failures. It's just kind of you go outside, beautiful sunset, looking at the trees, playing tag, you know, you're, you're happy, you're like your authentic self. And then as life goes on, you face traumas, right? So, you know, that first boy you liked made fun of you in grade one. You know, you, you brought home a test and your mom said you're not good enough. You got made fun of by kids at school. And, and these start to stack on fears, hurts, aversion, right? Things you want to avoid. And, and those things over time build up and change your personality. Okay. And so in the wild, an example from scientist Peter Levine is animals, when they're attacked, the fight or flight system turns on. They escape. They then discharge the energy by shaking. And so human beings, our fight or flight gets triggered. You know, we're getting made fun of. We feel in danger. You know, we're a little kid. We don't know how to deal with someone yelling at us. And that trauma is stored in the body. And it doesn't have to be, I got in a car accident. I went to war. We're facing traumas every day. Anytime you're feeling rejected, a sense of failure, anxiety, like you're holding on to that energy. And as you grow, you know, you kind of develop your behavioral patterns around not getting hurt. And so what psychedelics are purported to do is turn off the egoic mind, the part of the mind that creates your identity. So, you know, your identity is, I'm not good enough. I'm a mom. I'm, you know, from Canada. I'm the funny person. I'm the shy person. I like the sports team. All of that stuff, it's, it's made up, really. And when you take psychedelics, that part of your brain just turns off. And so you kind of let go of all these things you think you are. And as a result, you start to process some of those emotions. So maybe that, you know, for me, one impactful time was in this giant psilocybin journey. I went back to like the first time I remember being yelled at when I was a little kid by my mom. And not like probably to her, not a big deal. You know, she was stressed and I came home with like dirty snow pants and she was yelling about like ruining the snow pants and we didn't have a lot of money. And I think she was, you know, so, so like, like mad. And, you know, I took that on as I'm unsafe. And I remembered that experience and like my whole body was shaking just letting go and like processing that fear. And so the day after felt like extreme relief. And so especially the first, you know, 10, 15 journeys. And so that, you know, I've done probably a hundred over time, a lot more at first and now quite a bit fewer, but there's definitely a processing of these like stuck emotions and it can psychedelics breath work, both work that lead to lasting change. And then there's a kind of a golden window so, you know, you go on the psychedelic retreat, you come back for that month, you're like, I'm on fire. I'm happy. I can do anything. Habits, let's go. I quit smoking. Yeah. And then after about a month, it sort of starts to fade, not back to, you know, the starting level, but it, it starts to fade. And so, if you don't take advantage of that window, when neuroplasticity is increased to make behavioral change, mm-hmm. the psychedelics as a tool on their own, I found them to be marginally valuable for people who aren't suffering from mental health disorders. Mm-hmm. So let's say the standard burnt out entrepreneurial person who maybe sees a therapist, but isn't necessarily like clinically depressed or PTSD, but it's just like, I don't feel great. Right. What I've seen is like you use psychedelic medicines, you make a change, you come back. And if you don't change the pattern around you, the changes don't last. And so that's why I found you know, a lot of value from kind of going back for a deep dive once a year at this point. And I think that's true with any type of pattern. And I had, I found this with my, with my patients, we would do this deep transformational work. They would, you know, they'd lose a hundred pounds or they would, they would transform these elements. And the second you put them back into their native environment and their regular grocery store pattern and their, their family celebratory dinners with all the baggage and conversations and shame there was this regression, like your environment really does dictate 
so many of those outcomes. Tell me a little bit about the environment that you've created with Othership and the intention around that and how that can actually serve to support some of these more lasting changes. You know, we call it the house of transformation. And so what is transformation? It's a, it's a beautiful word for behavioral change. And so really, I've been obsessed with helping people change behaviors. And it's a result of like being an addict and now having that under control and then trying to teach people meditation and psychedelics without you know, it wasn't the, gr- the greatest starting point. And so I think there's there's two problems really that we want to solve. And the first is prep. So average person, I'll paint a picture as, you know, maybe I'm a mom, I've got my business on point, I'm staying healthy two times a week, I'm going to the gym, you know, I'm eating a keto diet, I, I know all the hacks, I'm listening to the podcast, and it comes to mental health. And it's like, nothing, you know, I, I don't, I don't need to see a therapist. How are you feeling? Oh, I don't really know how I was feeling today. Like, was I sad? Was I happy? Was I ecstatic? Was there joy? And so, exactly. But that's all on autopilot. So the average person is like, I know about physical health. I know sleep and diet is important. Maybe I'm cheating sometimes, but I'm doing okay. And then you get to mental health and it's just like completely blank slate. It's like, I don't really want to talk about it. I don't want to see a therapist. Or if I do see a therapist, okay, fine. It's expensive. You know, it's kind of difficult, like this tough work. And probably not something I share with like my closest friends and family, maybe one friend. And, and that's an interesting stat is people in the US now on average have less than 0.8 friends. So like <laughs> close friends. So like, But I have 5,000 friends on my device, yeah. Robbie. What are you talking about? Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, so it comes to mental health. I have no way to understand my feelings, share them. I've never been trained to do that. So that person is so far away from like, I'm going to go to Peru and do an ayahuasca retreat. I found there was a huge issue around this person doesn't even know they have the problem. They're just kind of like, you know what? I'm addicted to my phone and life kind of sucks. And that's who I, who I am. And, you know, it's okay. I have these moments that are great, but I'm stuck here. And that was a lot of people I know. Majority of people are sort of in that, in that realm. And then, you know, on the flip side, you have these people, they go and like, they do the ayahuasca, they do the meditation. They've tried the experience and then they came back and the changes, you know, like you just said, they didn't stick. And so I kind of saw that happening. It was like, hmm, I wonder how we could solve these things. Because these things did work for me. And I was trying to think of like what worked for me. And it, it seemed that, you know, we wanted to build something that was like a starting point. And just through luck, like honestly, luck and testing, we had an ice bath in my backyard, me and my partners, and we kind of were using it for longevity, like, like reduces inflammation, boosts the immune system. There's tons of these benefits. Athletes have been using it forever, super popular. But what we found was it actually was kind of an intro to meditation. And so people would get in, neuropinephrine would triple in the brain. All of a sudden, you know, that's the neurotransmitter for like mood, attention, vigilance, all the self-talk would just kind of fade away. And so I would see, you know, entrepreneurs addicted to their phone, boom, in it, in the present moment, thinking about their emotions, feeling into it. And so kind of thought, well, that's really interesting. And then we started doing breath work. And breath work is like a prep. People were saying like, hey, you know, I want to try these psychedelics, but not quite ready is there something else so you know we started doing these breathwork sessions for people and we kind of saw this progression it was like ice bath breathwork and then people would be like oh you know now i'm interested i'm ready there's like some value here i feel it i feel much better i'm processing my emotions and so it was just really nice like both of those have immediate feedback and they were done in community and it kind of started to inspire like thousands of people going from my backyard to my garage to like becoming and doing these these things so it felt like it was a funnel to get people towards more transformational experiences. And then we saw people coming back, you know, from ayahuasca retreats and all of a sudden they're hanging out. Instead of going to a bar, we wanted to create this space 
let's say the, the bar drinking alcohol hasn't changed in generations and traditional social things you can do are like, you know, go to a sports game, get wasted, go to a concert, get wasted, <laughs> go out for dinner, bottle of wine, go to a bar or nightclub. So it's, it's very much like, okay, I'm going to be social. I feel a bit of social anxiety. I'm going to have some, some alcohol to unwind. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a new generation. I'm sure people listening to you, your entrepreneurs, like, I don't want to feel like shit the next day. I don't need alcohol, you know, but, but like, what do I do? Because what do I do from 8 p.m. to midnight? Like all these activities are centered around alcohol. And there's so much cultural normalcy around that. Like if you don't drink, people are like, why are you not drinking? Yeah, it's insane. It's because like, you know, if I'm going to do it, I want to be around other people who are also doing it as well. And I saw this too. And I, you know, if I was doing drugs, I would be like, oh, come on, like you should do it too. We should all do it together. And like, it's such a weird thing. And so, you know, I think there's though now a lot of people who are meditating into psychedelic medicines, entrepreneurs more than ever, people starting businesses, you know, so it's just, there's like this huge group of, you know, biohackers, like people listening to Tim Ferriss and Ben Greenfield and Dave Asprey, like there's this massive group of people who are like, I don't want to drink alcohol anymore to socialize. Mm -hmm. And so I was in my head like, fuck, well, if that's the case, where do these people hang out? And I was always going to bathhouses. So the idea was like me and my my wife and my co-founders, all best friends, were like, let's build, build this place where it's like, you know, you can come hang out and it feels inspiring. But then also let's throw in some of this stuff that's going to get you, you know, more interested in um, changing your nervous system state. So like the breath work, the ice baths, the saunas, the classes around emotions. So it's kind of like the cycle that kind of like helps you start your journey and then helps you continue in your hometown when you come back to actually like make behavioral change. And what's so interesting about this is that this isn't this isn't new. I, I literally just landed 48 hours ago from doing a whirlwind tour of Italy with my mom. And I've always been fascinated with Roman ingenuity, like always. And what I found so interesting, knowing that I was literally going to be landing, we were going to having this conversation, was how prevalent baths and sauna and the use of temperature and the incorporation of socialization was in the Roman culture. Every ruins we walk through whether it was Pompeii or we were in the in the forum by the Colosseum in Rome, they're like, and then this is the massive bathhouse. This is where the women went, this is where the men went. There was cold baths, there were hot baths. Like the the technology they had to be able to uh, incorporate these pieces. And they said this was actually the local, this was the local gathering place. Like this is where the gossip was exchanged and the business dealings happened. And uh, like there's a huge longstanding ancient human tradition of of socializing and engaging in this in this context and i love that you have sort of resurrected it in a really new and novel way yeah what's really cool is it's also like not just ancient to rome but in japan there's onsen culture in indigenous practices the sweat lodge in mexico the temescal for spirituality in you know russia the banya and finland the sauna in turkey the hammam it's like legit almost all cultures and somehow we've lost it in North America, um, which is really interesting. And, and I think we're going one step further where yes, these are places to socialize, to build belonging. Absolutely. But what's sort of different now is using the ice bath and the sauna as ways to emotionally regulate. And so what I haven't seen to date is, you know, doing breath work and anger releases and fear releases and couples plunges and a lot of this emotional work you do in therapy in a community environment through the the hot and cold. I think that's what makes it really unique is like, okay, I'm at my hottest. My mind is shutting down. I'm coming into my body. Can I use that space to reprogram my subconscious with feelings of like forgiveness or release or vocal toning? And 
that's where the magic uh, really comes in, I think. And there is magic. So I, I have probably for the last, I'm going to say year and a half, two years, done an ice bath almost every morning. Like we had our thermostat in our house, like reset for our, our baths. And if I miss it, like I, I miss it. I have this like longing because it's like the same high you get from a workout that happens in 90 seconds. And there's nothing else that takes place in your my kids can be losing their mind right beside me and it doesn't I love you, it doesn't baby. penetrate me it is like it is the safest space ironically because the reluctance of so many people is like I don't want to be uncomfortable but it is I, d- I don't know what your experience is for me like being in the cold is actually this incredibly safe psychological space it's so fascinating yeah, there's a few things happening. So one, the, the neuropinephrine in the brain is instantly boosted. It's your brain saying like, hey, I need to be aware because this could be dangerous. And so immediately you're sent into the space of like hyper presence. Um, at the same time, it's creating a fight or flight response. So your, your breath wants to... <laughs> and we see for the first timers, they're, they're breathing from the chest. They're, they're hyperventilating. And so what you're doing, you're teaching your body, you're eliciting a fight or flight response, you're teaching your body to react, you're building emotional resilience. So guess when else you're in a fight or flight response? Anger, embarrassment, fear, all these emotions that come up, but you can't really practice for anger, you know, like you get cut off on the road, you swear, you yell at the person, fuck. Usage alert about fuck. For many people, the word fuck is extremely vulgar, considered improper and taboo in all of its senses. Even so, Various forms of the word have increasingly crept into casual use, not only as spontaneous expletives of shock, horror, or anger, but also as verbal tics and common intensifiers, mere indices of annoyance or impatience or even pleasant surprise. Where are my fucking keys? What the fuck is taking so long? This is fucking awesome. Nevertheless, the term is best avoided altogether in polite company. And now back to the important fucking bits. Wish I didn't react that way. So what the ice bath is teaching you is, Boom, here's what a fight or flight state feels like. And through my breathing, through long, slow exhales, I can actually let go and strengthen my nervous system response. And that's that idea of like, oh, I'm actually in this like safe container. It's I'm faced with fear and stress and I'm like letting it go and strengthening my response, which is super beautiful. And then at the same time, you're hyper present in that space. So we actually on our app have a number of ice bath meditations and breath work to do in the bath. So some, there's like a four minute toning where you're doing slow vocal toning to strengthen your parasympathetic nervous system while you're in the ice bath. So definitely check those out for sure. (laughs) I am going to check those out. I was like, okay, because I've been playing with the app while I was, while I was away and I love it. And, and for anyone listening to my podcast, what they know is that moving into 2022, like really stepping up and, and becoming more aware and committing to doing breath work was one of my commitments for this year and exploring it's in its importance. How is it that we have, lost this capacity to breathe like this is this is so fundamentally basic to our our life and yet so many of us are walking around not doing it effectively completely unaware of its magic and power to influence us physiologically like when did we when did we lose that oh there's so much there's so much there so i think the first thing is like what it what is the breath and so the breath is really the gateway to control your autonomic nervous system. So, okay, that's a lot. What does that mean? So, your breath controls your heart rate. Your inhale increases your heart rate. Your exhale decreases. It controls blood flow and circulation. It controls your emotional state and hormonal response. It controls digestion. It controls your immune system. And so, 
first thing to remember is like, why is breath important? It's because it can activate all these different responses and hormonal pathways in the body. Uh, another thing to note is the best predictor of life, of longevity, is actually the size, your lung size, study called the Framingham study. So people just don't understand, like, I, I would say, really, like, it's only the last, what, 20 years that like health and wellness has started to become pretty mainstream. And so the first was like diet, as people have been talking about diets forever, right? And, and then it's kind of like exercise, okay? Everyone knows like I should be healthy, diet, exercise. In the last five years, sleep has come to the forefront. And so it's pretty clear like all oh, the eight sleep, the dark room, no screens before bed, the blue light blockers, like eight hours of sleep, non-negotiable for willpower. So those are like the three pillars of health. And the, the fourth and fifth, which aren't as well known, but will be, is breath. And we'll talk about that and why breath breathing patterns have been destroyed. And then the fifth is uh, emotional and social connection, which we're just starting to realize how important that is from a science-based perspective. So now that we know that breath controls our entire autonomic nervous system, it can either press the gas pedal on the nervous system. So that's like you get in the cold plunge, you're stressed, boom, you start breathing fast, right? It turns on this like fight or flight. So you're aware, you're ready, which is fine and good if you're actually in danger. But during our lives, we're looking at our phone like, boom, I'm late for a meeting. Fight or flight's kicked in. You know, I'm looking at all my emails, fight or flight. I'm looking at social media notifications, dopamine, fight or flight. All day long as an entrepreneur, you're like 99% in this fight or flight, overwhelmed, overstimulated state. The issue with that is the other side of the nervous system, parasympathetic rest and digest side, is where we find like meaning, you know, we're having sex, we're laughing, we're eating, all these like places where you feel emotion and, and joy. And so as an entrepreneur who's hyper-stressed, it's very difficult to access that space and what like an average day would be. So what's really cool about the breath is it can either press the gas pedal in the nervous system if you need a coffee replacement, you're procrastinating, or it can push the brake. You know, long, slow exhales, breath retention, you can move into that parasympathetic state, prepare your mind for sleep, transition from work to being present, you know, prepare for eating. So breath has the potential to control your entire nervous system. It also has the potential to shut down the thinking mind, which is where people are trying to get in meditation to some degree or to notice your thoughts. Breath is physiological. So if you're, you know, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, 60 minutes in these deep breathwork sessions, you're slowing the oxygen, the prefrontal cortex, and you're warping your sense of self, your identity, your sense of time. And as a result, your body starts to process these emotions and traumas that we talked about, and your nervous system actually re-regulates, your stress response improves. So all of that happens through breath, right? So just think of it as a tool you can use to shift your nervous system state. Why is it so, like, for lack of a better term, fucked up? Well, we've been eating a lot of processed foods. Processed foods change the body's pH balance, makes it way more acidic. And so what we do is we breathe out much faster to reset the body's pH. So we start to overbreathe. We also are chronically checking our phones and screens. And this thing happens called like email apnea, where you get into this fight or flight state while you're working and you overbreathe. And what overbreathing does over time, your body, your brain has like a humidifier. Think of it as like a thermostat in your house and it's tracking how much CO2 is in the body. And the more we overbreathe, that thermostat just like goes down. So let's say it's just like at 70. And now because of all this overbreathing from stress and poor food, it's gone down to 60. Now, the problem is the amount of CO2 in your body determines how much oxygen you can absorb, right? And so as that CO2, you're breathing, you're overbreathing all the time, you're not absorbing enough oxygen in the brain, in the organs, in the tissue, in the muscles. 
And oxygen is the key ingredient for like every process in the body. So what happens, you start to feel fatigue, poor sleep, anxiety, overwhelm. And this can be felt even in two minutes of rapid breathing. You can start to like lose focus because you don't have enough CO2 in the body. So it's really interesting that our society, the way we live now, no boredom, sedentary lifestyle, set temperature, screens all day. It's, it's just mayhem for our breathing practices. And there's like a little test you can do as well to see like, am I breathing properly? And that test is in the morning. It's called the Bolt Score and you can Google it. But you basically inhale, exhale, hold on empty and see how long you can hold until your diaphragm contracts. And if it's under 20 seconds, which it's probably going to be for most people, it's not like try to hold as hard as you can. It's just like when the stomach contracts, okay, that's it. It's a good sign that like I'm not absorbing enough oxygen. My CO2 levels, my CO2 tolerance is too low. So um, I would just say like if you're struggling with willpower, with sleep, with fatigue, a really good place to look is, is am I foundationally breathing properly? It's actually so exciting. I was... I don't, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, what it's called. There's an exercise on your app where it's like, it's like one breath in the minute where you're inhaling for 20 seconds and you hold it for 20 seconds and you exhale for 20 seconds. And the first time I did it, I was like, I think I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah. And it was this really great, it was just this really great personal awareness. And I've always known I have this, like my husband was a swimmer and he's like, I don't understand. Like you, like you can't breathe near water. And I was like, I know, like I'd be doing yoga and everyone else is inhaling and I'm exhaling. And so that, that dysfunction, I'm like, I'm super aware of my breathing dysfunction and super excited to, to delve into the app, share with everyone a little bit more about what they'll find on the other ship app, because I think it's so exciting. So I think there's, there's like kind of four things. So the first is, is like up we talked about. So it's creating that fight or flight state. And so you may have heard of this as like breath of fire in a yoga class. You may have heard of it as like Wim Hof breathing. Hey guys, I'm the Iceman. <laughs> There's a number of different techniques. And so you're creating a fight or flight state and why you might want to do that is to, to boost energy, to boost your creative energy for inspiration. So like I'm procrastinating, I can't sit down, you know, I want to have my morning routine and like instead of a coffee. And so it's, that's one, we call it the up. And so every day there's a daily up under seven minutes, just like first thing in the morning out of bed, let's go, you know, or like maybe it's the afternoon and you're tired. The next parasympathetic, we talked about the daily down. And so that's long, slow exhales, a lot of breath retention, just set to like really nice music. So not too much voices, just, you know, you listen, you breathe along and you're creating that state change in the body. So the down is like, hey, I'm, you know, a lot of thoughts before sleep. I'm panicked and nervous. I'm so zoned in to work because I've been on my computer for 14 days. I want to go spend time with my wife or husband or kids. And I like, I want to stop thinking about work. So it's really a daily under seven minutes up or down you can use as needed. And then there's this other thing I mentioned, like explore, right? Where you're breathing so much, you're slowing the oxygen flow to the brain and like bringing up emotions. And so in this, we have like 20 minute, 30 minute, 60 minute deep dives where you're releasing shame, you're releasing guilt, you're building gratitude, you're saying thanks to your inner child, all emotion-based. And so those are like, hey, I'm going through a breakup, you know, and I need some space. I'm, I'm worried about my job. I'm not making enough money. I have imposter syndrome. I, you know, I uh, got in a fight with my sister. Like, it's, it's like every day you're having these emotions and we want to process them. And so what we recommend is, you know, choose if you're looking for more of the up or down experience Monday to Friday, and then once a week, go in for like a deep dive to do some uh, emotional regulation. 
And so that's what you'll find. So those are kind of the three. So up, down, and then we call the emotional regulation all around. And so that's just this idea of like, I'm finding emotions in my body. I'm shutting down my thinking mind. I'm processing them and I'm feeling just like way lighter. You know, I'm coming out of it in, in as short as 15 minutes. And I'm feeling like, okay, there's some space here. You know, so it's really good for burnout and overwhelm and challenging feelings. And then the final one is improving your daily breath, just your, your breathing. You know, you want to be breathing through your nose, ultra slow. You know, the ideal perfect breathing pattern is called coherent breathing. It's breathing at the rate of your, your heart. And so it kind of differs slightly per person, but it's around an in six, out six. So five breaths per minute, let's say. And, you know, there's a lot in there of just training your breathing to be through your nose and, and breathe perfectly while you're not exercising. So you can really use it to change your nervous system state, process emotions, and then improve your foundational breathing. Robbie, I feel like this is the perfect place to transition the interview. I have something I call our impact ingredients. I intend for these to be rapid fire and they are not. And every week I'm like, I'm going to change it up a little bit. And every week I don't get there. Um, but here's my first question for you. When you need it in a moment's notice, how do you cultivate courage? Like how fast do I got to go here? Just like... You have to go so fast. You hardly get to breathe. You get to go as long as you want. That's why I was preface it with like, yeah, these so are the one terrible came, rapid fire questions. Awesome. So the one that came to me first is like, okay, well, when did I need courage? And the first thing that popped, and this is how my mind is insane. But so the first thing was like when I was afraid and it was like, okay, what if the app doesn't work? What if the space doesn't work? Oh my God, we have all these employees. What if we run out of money? That's like the constant entrepreneurial fear of like, what if it's not going to work? Oh, what if we can't grow? And then, you know, so you need to be strong. And so I go into things that make me happy. And, and in the case of work, it's like the customer experience. And so if I feel that coming, I'll fucking do a breath work. I'll get in the studio. I'll create one. I'll make one. I'll go into the space and just like do a class and be around people and watch them. And every time I'm like in the space with my wife, our co-founders, it's like, just amazing how it feels in there. And I watch people smiling and it's like, Oh, what am I worried about? This is amazing. Who cares? Like, of course it's going to work. This is amazing. You know, it's so good. And so I think if you need courage, you, you think of what the fear is and then try to do the opposite. And so if it's an entrepreneur, like call your customer, look who's using. Oh, that's another thing we do. We look at the people who've used the app 200, 300 times. Every sing I make every single person on our team every week interview at least one person who's used it more than 100 times. Just so they feel like, fuck, yeah, like this is real. Like people love it, you know? Because sometimes when you're selling, it's just no, no. Investors like, no, punch in the gut. Oh my God, no, that's never going to work. So then you talk to your talk to people who love what you're doing. And it just makes you feel so good. Like, Yes, you know, so that that's that's how I find courage is I find the yeses. What's your unwavering health commitment? I've been creating space each day. And so, you know, if I start to notice I'm irritable, which is like the telltale sign is like, oh, this person didn't finish this fast enough. You know, this customer is getting on my nerves. I can start to see, oh, there's some irritability. And so my commitment is like, take a break. And that means no caffeine for one, two, three days. So this um, stuff we talked about at the start with the pattern interrupts. Like I have to do that just because of my addictive background or else everything else gets crowded out. So taking like breaks without my phone when I need them, is like non-negotiable. As an entrepreneur, were you born that way or did you learn it? Oh, it's definitely learned. <laughs> I don't think you can be born. I, so I, I went... Um, oh, that's so funny. So yeah, like I mean, the first company I had, complete failure. Thought like, oh, I'm smart. I worked in finance. I can figure it out and just fucked up you know, the hiring completely 
raised too much money, oversold something that didn't really work, didn't focus on the product enough, business, you know, hired way too fast, spent all the money, fired everybody, complete failure, disaster, and was afraid to ask for help. I used to be afraid to like get on calls and, you know, ask for something. I was like, no, I can do it myself. I can figure it out. I'm smart. And like to me, what an entrepreneur is now is like, and also it was just like, oh, I just want to make a lot of money. So that's, you know, this is the way you start your business, you make money. And now it's just the complete opposite. And those lessons were hardwired through like abject failure. And so now it's focus on the customer no matter what, focus on the product, um, do what you love and that like excites you, build slowly, test out an MVP and then like let it go and then ask for help. Like I started out, I was just like, I'm going to ask for three people a week, you know, to meet them and ask them for help. And that over seven years has now turned into I'll do like 15 meetings a day on occasion, some weeks just being like, Hey, this person's great at landing pages. Can you help me? This person's great. You know, and then it's like, who are three people I should talk to? So I'm always like, no shame. I'll ask people just, and even if they ignore me, I'll hit them up three times. And I think that desire to like that ability to put yourself out there and just like not care that came from, okay, I've already failed. I was in my parents' basement, like, well, it's not going to get any, you know, your, your image is shattered. And then when you operate from a place of just completely being humble, being the stupidest person in the room asking, like, you know, then I worked in crypto where I knew nothing about any of the science or tech. And like, every time we're in a meeting, I'm asking like, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? Just the dumbest questions. But that's how you learn, you know, is you have to be comfortable um, not caring what people think and like appearing to be stupid, which a lot of people or to ask for help. And like most people, like those two things are so hard. And I don't think those are traits you're born with. Those are things you have to like learn by doing. It is hard to ask for help. We were at a dinner together and that was one of the questions. How are you at receiving? It was so interesting. This room of entrepreneurs were like, bah. Um, but that that is a whole other learned skill. Last question for you, Robbie. What do you want your legacy of impact to be? I think I'd be really happy. So, so there's two. Like one is just for me when I was going through my transformation slash looking for these techniques that were really hard to find. It was it felt like there was something wrong with me, and it really felt like I'm not a good person. I'm broken. Then there was nothing that was like inspiring me to change. And so I would love to create products that help the you know 300 million people who have no mental health practice yet because it's stigmatized and hard to access to take their first steps. And so if we had, you know, 50 locations, this crazy app, and it would help you on your first step, just to like, I mentioned, most people don't know what they don't know kind of thing. It's like, I don't know, there's an option for me to feel better. I would feel amazing if we had made a pathway that brings the next, you know, 300 million people into like, mental health. Robbie Bent, I've just so many amazing things. Where can we send people to watch you along your journey and uh, learn more about the Othership app? Absolutely. So just, you know, Othership app in the uh, Apple App Store and Google Play Store, um, Robbie Bent one on Twitter, uh, Robbie Bent on LinkedIn. I talk about, I build in public, we share our, you know, updates and reports and everything. So you can find me there and then at Othership.us. Is the or othership.app is the uh, Instagram handle. Amazing. We will hook everyone up in our show notes. You can find those at meganwalker.com forward slash podcast. Robbie Bent, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. That was really fun. <sighs> Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in, or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel, and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.